regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Datacast, and today I have the pleasure to be on the call with Fabiana Clemente. Fabiana is currently a data scientist with a background that ranges from business intelligence to big data development IoT architecture. She also serves as a chief data officer at Y Data. Throughout her professional career, she has been leading state-of-the-art projects, not only in global companies, but also in startups. She has an academic background in applied mathematics and a master in data management combined with another degrees in deep learning and SQL and private AI. As Y Data's co-founder, she combines data privacy with deep learning as her main fields of work and research with the mission to unlock data with privacy by design. She also aims to inspire more women to follow her steps and join the tech community. So yeah, Fabian, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. That's my pleasure. So yeah, by way of introduction, I noticed that you got a bachelor degree in applied mathematics from University of Lisbon back in the early 2010s. So yeah, can you just talk a little bit about your undergrad experience? Well, back then, I was not yet sure of what I wanted to follow as a professional career, but I did have a passion for mathematics. So that led me to take as my bachelor applied maths. It was a very interesting experience in the sense that I had the opportunity to touch in a lot of different areas because as you are exploring applied maths, you are not only looking into a single space. So some of the topics or the studies that we had were some were more related with physics, for example. Some others were more related with statistics, which can be more applicable in some situations. So we had optimization, we had multivariate analysis of data, and we had as well what today we can call initiation to data science, but no one at that time was calling that type of subject as data science. So it was interesting to get that sense of mixing what is science and the more theoretical side of uh, mathematics with the applications and use of, for example, programming languages to deliver things. So it was a very interesting perspective of the different applications that mathematics can have. And that I think it was what gave me the idea of the broader scope that we can do as professionals. I see. Besides curiosity, what is like your favorite classes? Definitely at that time, I knew I didn't want to follow anything too much theoretical. Mm-hmm. So anything around algebra at that time, it was not my passion. But for example, things like optimization, multivariate analysis, applied statistics. It was definitely what I was passionate about, to be honest. I'm on the applied side of things. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Your first job out of college, mm-hmm. you work as a 
Sabo and BI developer roles at Nova mm-hmm. Base, which is a Portuguese leader in the IT industry. So what are some of the lessons you learned from your first job? While working for Novabuzz, as I was a consultant, one of the things that you learn is definitely how to handle a customer. So it's not only how you develop something, but also how you pass a message to the other side. That is pretty good because you are out of university and you know what to do. Well, not that much, but you have an idea of how to develop things. But what about a more professional way to engage with others? How to do that? How to really work in a team to achieve something? Those were my big takeouts from my first job, definitely. I see. After that first role, you then spent one year as an IoT solution architect at Vodafone, which is a leader in tech communication through mobile fix and broadband television. What attracted you to join Vodafone and what are some unique challenges of scaling IoT architecture? It was an opportunity that appeared. In fact, it was during Web Summit, the first one when a Web Summit happened here in Lisbon. I was reached out by an architect from Vodafone and they had like this position for data solution architect. They were looking for someone that had experience in also building databases and using the information in databases to extract analytics regardless if those analytics were more on a business intelligence perspective or if it were more applied statistics or even machine learning on the data. At that time, I was thinking this is quite a jump because that definitely before I was always a developer. So although, yes, when you are working as a consultant and you have a small team, you do a bit of everything from developing to defining the solution But to be an architect and to design scalable solutions for IoT was definitely a big, big challenge. But I guess both the values of Vodafone and also this opportunity to embrace something so interesting was what compelled me to change. Can you elaborate a bit more on some of the challenges of like, you know, scaling this architecture that does serve massive more audience? Like what are some of the concrete challenges, both engineering and organizational that you can recall? Yeah, there are a lot of challenges, right? So because in IoT, you have two different perspectives on the way you can use data. You either can use data on a batch manner because you are extracting insights or either you want to extract real-time insights. So you have these two requirements from IoT, which means that besides the high volume of data that you are dealing with, You have to decide how to set a good infrastructure to cope with those volumes and also with the different necessities for the speed of the insights that you are delivering. So how can you design? And at the time I was defining this from the scratch because there was something around data and BI, but was not that much around the application of machine learning and the use of that data for other type of insights. So basically is how to define from the scratch an architecture that can cope with all these requirements and at the same time is scalable and flexible enough for new requirements in the future. I do remember that big data was definitely the way to go. It's very interesting that we see at that time the architectures that were influencing a lot of the choices were related with the ones followed by for example spotify which was always a good company to follow on that 
subject, also Uber with the Michelangelo architecture. So those were my inspirations for the work that I developed there. And definitely, and although it was a challenge, the main concern was not to design the architecture to cope with the requirements. It was definitely how you can convince people to accept something so new and so different from what you are used to. Because we have to see that a lot of companies did rely on RDBMSs and the traditional storages. To tell to those persons, no, listen, there are new type of storages and there are new solutions to process data. And a lot of those are open source. Okay, how do you deal with that in an enterprise level? Open source is usually not enough. Also, the teams, how can you structure teams that already exist in a way that they can cope with this new technology? So definitely the major bottleneck and the major challenge was there. How can you change the culture, the way people think, and restructure the teams to accept this type of architectures? And I, I think regardless of technology being challenging, different, and interesting, people will always remain as the concern number one when adopting something new. Great. Thank you a lot for emphasizing on the challenges of getting by in the relevant stakeholders, like uh, fighting early adopters of any new trends or technologies, always going to yeah. be uh, massive hurdles. I guess that, that role really introduced you to this world, big data. And so up to Vodafone, mm-hmm. you spend the next year working as a data scientist at mm-hmm. startups such as ODSI and um, Habit Analytics. So what were some of the projects that you got involved with? In Vodafone, as I was a solution architect, I was mainly around building conceptually and making sure that any architecture could cope with the other systems that existed within the company. But I was not coding or developing itself. So I was seeing things from above. And I was missing a lot of my times as a developer because I'm a person that I really enjoyed to learn and seeing new things and exploring them by my own. That was what let me return to my development and decided to work as a data scientist. I found two interesting projects. One of them was really related with documents, information extraction. For example, when you have a receipt and you want to extract the number of items that you bought, the price of those items and the total amount of that you paid in an automated way through the use of machine learning to do that. That was one of the interesting projects. At that project, it was, I think, my opportunity to start exploring the world of deep learning that until then I did not have the opportunity to go in depth. So I knew deep learning existed, but definitely it was where I started getting passion about it. The other project was more related with human behavior. So how can you extract insights based on how the people move to where and when? It was very interesting in terms of the amount of data was more related with the experience I had in IoT because, well, it is sensor data from mobile phones and it was a different perspective. So this was not so much related with the learning, but how can you start building a human behavioral system from the ground? Yeah, both of them were quite amazing, very different from each other, but they did teach me something. So 
different data science projects or data projects have different requirements, different needs in terms of architectures, and also different needs and skill sets in terms of analytics and machine learning. That was definitely what I learned better at those experiences. Yeah, it's a lot for sharing those experiences. How you got to level up your skill set as a data scientist. I believe that while working in the industry, you also got two master's degrees, one in applied econometrics and forecasting from the Lisbon School of Economics and Management, and another mm-hmm. one in information management, business intelligence and knowledge management from the Nova IMS Information Management School. How was this experience for you and what were some of your favorite graduate level courses? They were two very different experiences. One of them was more towards the use of IT for data analytics, which was the one that I did in Nova. That was an interesting perspective of how businesses can leverage AI to extract insights. So that was the core of the master, essentially, and also was a perspective of how combining everything from that warehousing to data lakes to data mining and data science all together and how to then share the information that you extract as a data scientist with whom of the business that takes decisions. So it was the combination of the, let's say, the full life cycle of delivering insights in a company, which was a very interesting perspective. The one that I did in econometrics was a bit different. It was far more theoretical and more focused on what are applied statistics, let's say, to economy. It was very interesting, especially because it's more on the financial side of things. But it was where I understood the type of data that I like the most to work with. Because regardless of being really a master's degree dedicated to applied statistics to economy, it has a very strong base in time series analysis. So time-dependent data, well, that exists in IoT, financial services, and so on, got definitely my passion. And that was the first place where I learned that it did exist and the challenges to to extract insights from that type of data. It seems like your education and focus more on sort of the BI side of thing. Just out of curiosity, like how do you differentiate between business intelligence and, and data science? Like what are the main differences between these two domains? Mm-hmm. I don't consider that my education was very focused on BI because both econometrics and let's say even applied maths and even what I took at Nova were more related what can be called as data science. But regardless, if we are considering BI as the concept of what it is, data science can be part of the BI scope if we we are going to see, because it's definitely how you base your business decisions in data and you don't take decisions just on your gut feeling. That's the nutshell or the wider scope of what it means BI. In a technical perspective, and with that one, I definitely relate because for me, data is important. It's what I'm passionate about. But how can we use data in a nice way and give us really to the business specific insights that can take us through one path or the other? So with that one, I really relate a lot. In terms of a technical perspective, and there are a lot of tools or a lot of education around what is called business intelligence. Those are more related 
with what we might know as a data warehousing kind of skill set, also to have and build scalable ETL pipelines and afterwards have a nice visualization tool to ensure that you can ask the right questions to the data warehouse that you built. It's very important. And I think it sets the base for the first step for companies that want to start investing in getting data-driven insights. But definitely the concepts of this technical BI versus data science are very different. Data science, I consider it much more experimental when compared to the path of building a BI solution. Building a BI solution has a very well-defined methodology. Mm-hmm. So you have to know the questions. You have to know what you want to see answered back. On data science, you have to do the right answers, but you don't have the methodology defined. So that's why I like it so so much. You as a data scientist, you can explore the data as you wish. You know that, of course, exists all that path of data exploration, extraction of features, then building the model and afterwards providing the insights. But all of this can be done in so many different ways that it's really about exploration and experimentation. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel that, let's say, creativity on the side of the business intelligence. Yeah, thanks for differentiating between these two concepts. You also briefly mentioned, you know, through your econometrics degree, you get that passion about what type of data that you enjoy working with, right? Some of the challenge with that. Since August of 2019, you have been the co-founder and chief data officer of Y Data, mm-hmm. which is the first data-centric platform with synthetic data. Can you share the story behind the founding of the company and in general, like how did you become interested in data privacy and data security? During my roles as a data scientist or as a person that was working directly with data, there were some things that made me think. So sometimes the access to data was really, really hard in a point that you had to wait six months or more to have access to the data in order to do just a small proof of concept. That was not feasible at all, or in yourself as a data scientist, or even as a data architect, as you wish, it is time that you are just idle waiting to start working or to know if the project is even feasible. Because if you don't know what data do you have, you also don't know what to expect from the results of a project that you are going to do. This was one of them. So how can I have faster access to data without concerns around the sensitiveness of the data and also privacy, because those were the real blockers for the access to data in a fast manner without losing too much of an information. That was the first question. And that was something that definitely I found while working for big enterprises. The other one is the other side of the same spectrum. So If you are in a small company or if you are working with data science in a small company, you usually have a lot of access to a lot of things. And that was making me a bit uncomfortable in a sense that, okay, I guess I'm a good person and I won't do anything with this data, but let's say I just get it, have it extracted to my side and use it in the wrong way. I'm extracting here insights about persons and these persons are real. So 
I got the sense of those two spectrums. And while talking with my co-founder, we understood that this was not a problem just from my reality and also his reality because we we start talking with other persons and we understood this was really a problem. So there is something here and data science teams are struggling with this. That was the reason why we started Why Data. With these questions in mind, I start exploring a bit the space of data privacy to understand better what type of solutions could not only provide me the privacy I think it is needed, but also that enable data science teams to still do their work in a timely manner. That was when I started digging into privacy enhancing technologies such as federated learning, differential privacy, and all the exploration took me to synthetic data. Because in the end, that what is what I like to call data anonymization that is friendly, or data science friendly. Thanks for sharing the, the funny story of why data and you know how you become interested in data privacy. Let's dig a bit deeper into some of the few technical problems that why data is solving. Your platform mm-hmm. solves the data pains with synthetic data and tools that improve data quality in an automated way. And you have written broadly about various techniques to generate synthetic data including, you know, uh, different oversampling techniques, major networks, and even generative models. Could you mind just kind of going over some of these techniques in brief overview? Understanding that synthetic data was the way to go, we started exploring what kind of techniques and algorithms could help us out to make this possible. So in the world of generative models, we found that we had things like major networks, also generative, again, so generative adversarial networks, or even LSTMs were feasible for the job. But we definitely had another concern. So how can we make synthetic data with the same utility, fidelity, and quality as the original data while still guaranteeing variability and privacy? And out of the available solutions, definitely generative adversarial nets were the ones that shown to be, let's say, very fitted for the job. Of course, for images, sound, and even text, they are very well known, especially for images, right? So they were born with uh, the concept of building synthetic images and are widely used for self-driving cars, for example. But for tabular data and time-dependent data, that was not true. Or at least there was no wide scope of wide range in the research world about using this type of algorithms for tabular data. And using this concept of having two networks working against each other in order to having one generating data and the other one saying, hey, listen, this is not real yet, or this is a good generated, because it's that that the discriminator is doing. It is a very interesting concept and a very interesting way to ensure that the data that is generated has the quality needed, has the utility and has the privacy, especially around the privacy. I definitely agree with you that you know, we mostly see generate models working with unstructured data. And definitely like there's have been a lot of you know use cases uh, using that for structured data. So I, I can see like why it might be an interesting approach that you are tackling. Just kind of continuing this conversation thread, you also wrote like a blog series on generating synthetic tabloid data 
with GANs, you know, discuss, you know, there's a use case in data generation and you uh, also even implement a couple of variants of this model, including vanilla GANs, conditional GANs, mm-hmm. and uh, what's the star GAN. So can you unpack some of the key insights covered in this block series? Synthetic data for especially tabular or even time series is, as I mentioned, a kind of a new concept and subject and also has its particularities. And data science teams, which are the targets to be using this kind of solution, need to trust this type of data, new data, let's say, data generated using deep neural networks. So we decided to move open source and to have some of the main architectures that are described within the research. And we implemented, as you mentioned, the vanilla GAN, which is just architecture that is very simple with just a generator, a discriminator, and that's it. The loss function as a very basic step. Mm-hmm. So just to people understand, okay, this is able to do it. And what are the challenges associated with this methods? Mm-hmm. That was the main objective of having the first story about how to use vanilla GAN for tabular data. So the challenges are notorious when you see the data generated. So you see the the mode collapse of the vanilla GAN. You see clearly that the data, for some reason, does not portray well the real behavior. And how to deal with that? Okay, this deal with high-dimensional data, because we can see that in a very easy way. There is a need for data preprocessing, as it is required for any machine learning process, but these networks have some issues like mode collapse and so on. That was the first objective. Conditional again, which is the other one that we implemented, brings a new improvement, right? So in this case, we already know the target. So we already know to what do we want to condition the training. This helps for the GAN to get better and improved because it already knows something. It already has a base. So this is just a way of showing that, okay, if you train in a total unsupervised manner, this is the results you get. When you start condition, you can improve the training, but that's not the all you need in order to get the best results ever. There are things that impact a lot the network. So you have the hyperparameter cycle, like the learning rates, the batch size, they have a high influence. That was the objective of that one. The Wasserstein GAN is again that brings us the changes in the loss function used. This is where we can understand that besides learning rates, hyperparameters, conditional, not conditional training, we have another factor that is impacting how these networks compete with each other, which is the loss. So the losses and the better we define the loss function for our networks, the closer the results will get to what you want. And these loss functions do behave in a different way with different types of data, either if it's tabular, sequential, images. So that is the main learn with Wasserstein GAN. Finally, and I mentioned, okay, from tabular data to sequential data or time series or time-dependent data, there is a big jump. So you not only have to be worried about the quality and how you generate each and every record, you are also worried about a new element, which is the time and how the time influences 
and the relation in between every different row. So this also requests you new type of architecture, so new type of networks. Should we go instead of a multi-layer perception, should we go for an LSTM, for example, or an RNN to ensure that we are learning the underlying relation in between each and every event? Mm-hmm. That is a learning of our last, let's say, post regarding the use of generative adversarial nets. But we are looking to keep updating this learning journey about what is to generate synthetic data. So not only as know how to do it and trust it, but also have a bigger data science community aware of the benefits that this can bring and how this can be achieved. I see. Yeah. You brought up a very interesting part about using generative models to generate a time series tableau data. Of curiosity, was there any research group or academic group that are working on generative models for mm-hmm. time series data that you were aware of? Yes, there is. In fact, the last GAN that we released in our open source mm-hmm. was developed by a researcher named Yoon. It was linked to a very interesting lab that is also developing some research in this area which is Michaela van der Schaar lab. So mm-hmm. definitely they are an interesting research to follow in that sense. They have a lot of information and topics about it. And it is something that I do personally recommend. Thanks for sharing. I'll be sure to put that into the show notes. I guess you kind of broadly, you know, talk about some of the challenges of training GAN models. And you also written about various new design architecture and some of the optimization techniques to improve the training of GAN models. Can you like just provide a brief summary of these techniques? You know, just a very high level for people to kind of aware what are ways that you can do to improve your training methodology? So some of them I do mention. So let me get started explaining this in a different way. So Definitely GANs do have some challenges around its use. One of them I already mentioned, which is the mode collapse. We also have the non-conversion and instability and the highly sensitivity to hyperparameters and the choice of the evaluation metrics. So there are different ways in different things that we can adopt in order to avoid them. For example, one of them is the selection of the cost function that we want to start as they are very sensitive to the hyperparameter choice. One interesting approach as we do for auto ML or even to select the hyperparameters of our red glare models in machine learning, how can we also apply hyperparameter tuning to GANs? Mm-hmm. And here it pops up a question. So what is the right cost function that we should select to the process of hyperparameter tuning, for example. That is one of them. Then to choose the right architecture for the GAN. And this will vary a bit with the type of data that you are working, as I've mentioned. And it's not only related with either it's sequential or it is tabular data. You also have other things that you must consider. So are we talking about a data set that is mixed, has different data types, meaning have categories, have continuous data? Are we talking just a data set that only has continuous data, is high dimensional, is not? So it will depend. Of course, we have some architectures that out of the box can already help out, even if you don't know 
what it looks like, the data. For example, if I can recall, there is this GAN, the memory GAN that follows a memory architecture, kind of, that can alleviate the problem when you are having an unsupervised learning with GANs. That's one of them. But there are many other considerations that you should have. Should I have more than one discriminator? Should I have more than one generator? It will depend on your end goal with the synthetic data and also the data that you are learning from. And finally, and this one was a bit mentioned, which is brings us again to the loss function and to the right selection of the loss function, mm -hmm. right? So from the regular GAN to, for example, Wasserstein GAN, we see the difference that the choice of a loss function can have, right? So Wasserstein GAN does provide more stability to the training. You also can apply regularization to your loss function or even gradient penalties, like you can see in Wasserstein with gradient penalty. You have the Kramer GAN, which is the use of the loss function with the Kramer divergency. So you have a lot of different things that you can iterate in order to improve your GANs or to have a better GAN model. Exploring the right architecture design, selecting the right loss function, and exploring the different optimization algorithms and ways that you suggest researchers or practitioners are interested in adopting the correct GANs model for these use cases. Let's move on and talk about some of the other interesting work that Data is innovating on. Differential privacy is one topic that I'd love to discuss. So the idea behind this technique is that it guarantees that anyone seeing the result of the analysis will essentially make the same inference about uh, an individual's private information, whether or not that individual was included in the input data. How is differential privacy different from synthetic data generation? And uh, what are some of the pros and cons of this approach? Mm -hmm. It's different in the sense that synthetic data, we generate new data that has not a direct relation with the real one. So it's completely new data. Differential privacy, that's not exactly the same concept. So you are kind of introducing noise to the data that you have in order that is not possible or it makes it harder to re-identify someone. And you can define the level of how hard can it be to re-identify someone. So it's what it is called the privacy budget. Mm -hmm. So you are, let's say, applying noise and the level of noise that you apply will decide how much privacy you will get with differential privacy versus how much utility of the data you lose uh, because you are introducing noise in the end. I think they are different. I'm pretty sure they are very different, but I think that they are highly complementary. Mm -hmm. in a sense that there is not possible, it's not like synthetic data is the key for everything, right? So you have different needs of data privacy at different stages of your process or within your organization. So definitely, I think that synthetic data for data science teams to explore the information that they have, it's very important. It provides you data in a granularity that you need without losing too much of the information. But let's say that you are talking about healthcare records. Mm -hmm. Maybe synthetic data alone, you want to have, let's say, an extra step to ensure that this new synthetic data is even more private, or you want to know the idea of the privacy loss that you are getting from the synthetic data. So the combination of generating synthetic data with differential privacy makes a lot of sense. 
So you are generating new synthetic data that also had differential privacy to ensure more perturbation and ensure that you are not getting the real data in any way copied or mimicked. So differential privacy and synthetic data makes a lot of sense to work together hand to hand. The cons that I see on differential privacy, I don't know if they are cons or if they can see be seen as a feature. Let's say if you want more privacy ensured with the use of differential privacy, you lose utility in the data. Right. But so privacy and utility are always a trade-off, regardless of the privacy enhancing technology that you are using. So that's the bigger con of using differential privacy. You have to know how to use it and you have to be sure of the privacy budget that you have. Right. If applied in the wrong manner, you can be extracting the wrong insights from your data. But I don't see it as a problem. I see it as a feature. And for sure, you have to master the topic in order to use it in the right manner. Yeah, I see. It seems like, you know, learning these techniques certainly requires some level of expertise that not a lot of people have. Providing such an outlet for people to understanding that is critical for them to exploring the viable opportunities that this technique can help them in their data privacy journey, right? Exactly. And that is applicable also for differential privacy, which I found it amazing. And I think many people can benefit from learning from it. But in order to do that, there is an effort of education that must be made by entities. And, and there are some entities that are doing that, which you can see already. I think it's IBM has already an open source for differential privacy. I'm pretty sure that also Microsoft has it. So we see already those education steps happening, which I think it's amazing and exciting, to be honest. Fabulous. In one of your other blog posts called The Cost of Poor Data Quality, you define data quality as data measures based on factors such as accuracy, completeness, consistency, reliability, and above all, whether it is up to date. Would you mind unpacking some of these factors and sort of their relative importance in a data platform? This, while extracting insights from the data, you have to be sure that the data is correct. Otherwise, the insights that you are extracting are not valid or will be wrong in a sense. And whenever you are extracting insights that are wrong, especially when you are using data-driven insights in your business, that can mean that you are not going in the right direction. So you might lose a customer. You might take a decision that costs you millions or you might miss something like a fraud for example, just because you didn't have the right data giving you the right insights. Because in the end, you can develop a lot of different models, but what does have more impact is the data that you chose to develop those models. And that's exactly why it is important that these factors that you mentioned should be taken in consideration in a data platform. So Accuracy stands for how good is your data for the problem that you have? How accurate will it be for the question that you want to see answered? The completeness, it's all about the missing values. But also, it's not only about the missing values that you can see and you can measure with the data, but it's also about the implicit missingness of your data. And I, let me just be more precise here. 
you can have your e-commerce, let's say, and you have all the data from your e-commerce, but there are other data from external entities that will have impact on your business. Let's say the weather. So that's about completeness as well. If you only have your perspective or your side of a problem, that means that you are not having the complete information that you need in order, the complete data that you need in order to extract the right insights or the more precise insights. So it's not only about missing values that you can see. The consistency is whether you have different signs within your data. So do you have any errors? Because, well, it is very easy to understand that when we are seeing labeled information by, by human hands, for example. So if you, by mistake, define something as a fraud when it wasn't, you are already creating mixed signs for a model to learn. That's a problem. Reliability, well, how much do you trust in that data? And whether it's up to date, I think it's one of the most important ones and why the access to data in a timely manner is so important. Mm -hmm. Because if you are using data from two years ago, you might end up having not the right information because things change. And we saw that when, well, the pandemic changed everything, right? So I guess that's why it is so important to consider this in a data platform. Yeah, that freshness component is definitely very, very important. Our curiosity, like, oh, these five factors you mentioned here, which one do you think is number one priority that data practitioners should focus on when they want to ensure the quality of their data? That's a very good question. I will answer, well, all of them are very important mm -hmm. for sure, but I will answer the up-to-date, just in a, in a sense that if you don't have access to anything in a timely manner, you also don't know about the other challenges that you might have, like accuracy, completeness, and so on. So that's why I think that having things up to date, it's a key, a setting stone to ensure completeness, consistency, reliability, and so on. Although it's a, it's a hard choice. <laughs> yeah, that's a great insight. So recently, you also written a bit about the importance of model explainability. What roles does model explainability play in the goal of ensuring data quality? That's a very good question. And I will answer in a different way. So model explainability let us know the impact that certain, let's say, variables had on a decision, let's say. You want to know why the model took that decision. And those decisions... In the end, when you understand why the model told you to provide a credit or not provide a credit, is based on the certain features that came from the data. That let you know what you are doing wrong or whether you have potential bias in the data. I think on that sense, model explainability can help you out understanding potential problems that you might have on your data. That's the part that is important. So if you ensure good data quality, for sure, you will have a model explainability that makes you happy and also in the end creates good relations with customers, for example, because you are not afraid to justify why you trusted a machine decision, let's say, because your data was good and your data was retrieving uh, unbiased and fair judgment of, let's say, the world of the situation that you are dealing with. 
I see. So you need data quality first in order to ensure explainability. Exactly. That's true, right? Well, explainability that you know that have the principles that you want to show to the world that you have as a company, let's say, if you are meaning as a company. But model explainability mm-hmm. can be a good tool for you to understand what you have wrong with your data. So they are highly related, let's say. Yeah. It, it goes both ways. Yeah, it's like a vicious cycle. It's a visual cycle, yes. So I'm just curious, like you written a bit about some of these different explainability methods. Was there any particular one that you're most excited about? Let me see. I will prefer to mention the open source, the Lime. Mm-hmm. It's definitely one of the tools that uh, makes me very excited. And I like to quote this as an open source because I do think it's good that people have the opportunity to experiment with this kind of solutions. So they can be more aware of what exists, the potential they can bring, and how they can help in ensuring a better machine learning development. So okay. definitely Lime. Sure. I guess like, you know, one quick question related to that part about open source. One of the principles of why data is, is you know, you, you create this open source library of the different implementation of Gantz mm-hmm. method and you put it on GitHub so people can take a chance to take a look at it. What motivated you to go that open source route and how, how do you see that play into your bigger strategy of your company? Well, myself as a developer and also my co-founder, we always enjoyed while developers open source. So open source were what enabled us throughout our careers to learn new things. So to experiment with new technologies and to rely on them, right? Because, for example, and it's a good example in big data, you have the Hadoop, you have the Spark ecosystem, and, and, and you know those tools work because you had the opportunity to experiment with them prior to buy them, right? And I think open source is, is exactly that. It's open horizons and show you new things with the help of someone that understands those topics. That's all about open source. And also it's all about the community, right? So if you give back and if you give without having the expectation to receive you are creating this sense of community where everyone is available to share a bit. And it's proven that you develop better solutions if you have more people thinking about that rather than having just one person. And that's a bit of what we believe. And because synthetic data is something so new in the market, we understood that we needed to be those persons that do open source and show to the community, okay, you see, synthetic data is trustable, is reliable, and you can generate your own data with these models. So it's the part of the education that we foresee here with the open source solution. Mm-hmm. And of course, in terms of the company, this is always ties up with the product, right? So if the community of data science trusts the technology that you are using, it's far more easy to convince people that they need a solution like uh, white data spot. It's set as a way to validate the need of the market, right? Because, you know, exactly. uh, people contribute to open source and any GitHub issue showing up and can serve as a potential feature as you're on your product roadmap. Exactly. I'm just curious, uh, you've written a lot of these blog posts on these various topics. What do you plan to write about next? Definitely all about how to evaluate the quality of the data. I think that is still missing. We talk about data quality, we know it exists, but how to evaluate it in in reality? How can we be specific about those evaluations? Definitely that is something that 
we have planned to start writing about. It will be what is next. So besides, you know, your work with Quiet Data, you also run a podcast called When Machine Learning Meets Privacy uh, in collaboration with the MLOps like community. What were some of the topics that you have covered and like what do you want to achieve with the show? One thing that we have noticed is uh, based on the, a lot of machine learning architectures and data architectures, so we are still missing in the market to see a lot of privacy enhancing technologies adopted. So we see the masking, the hashing, the traditional ones applied, true, but throughout the process of building a machine learning workflow, what are the privacy methodologies that can be applied and are feasible for the, the machine learning and MLOps, basically? That was the objective. So a bit of education on that side. That's why we cover things like data ops, which is, let's say, one of the latest topics around. So it's not just how do you operationalize your data. Then you have also topics around federated learning, differential privacy that we already talked today, synthetic data. What is privacy and what are the differences between privacy and body security, right? And ethics in AI. So all of this are linked together and it was the main objective and the goal. Yeah, it's educating people in these various topics that are related to the importance of privacy and the application in the context of machine learning, right? Let's take off your data head and put on your founder head. What are some of the major challenges you encounter to get the first cohort of customers for wide data? I guess that the first is how can you start engaging people and engaging organizations in order to show your product? How can you be sure that you are engaging the right industries and also the right organizations? Because in the end, you have to identify that they need this kind of solution. So how do you do that? How do you ensure that well, this is something that can unlock them many opportunities as a business. And how can you show the value of such a technical product and the impact of it, the direct impact on the business? I think those can summarize well the challenges to get the first cohort of customers. Hiring is another critical responsibility of any early stage startup founder. So what valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about why data's mission? Definitely, there are two main things. So it's a type of technology that we are using. So the use of deep learning and the use of these technologies that are pretty rare to be found, let's say in the ecosystem of development, even if you go for different organizations. So we are building edge technology. I, I, and that is something that excites the candidates, for example. Mm-hmm. It's how can you learn new things while working and working with cutting edge technology? That's one. The other one, it's also about the values of the company. Of course, as a early stage startup, the people that you hire are very important and critical for the success of your company. So you have to be sure that the values that you are setting for the company right at the beginning are the right to attract the good development teams that and the good developers that exist out there. And that is part of what we ensure that gets clear throughout the process of hiring. So 
that they know that Waidita is a place of collaboration. It's a place where feedback is valuable and goes both ways. It's not only about from above, or in this case, from the founders to the employees, but also back. So we are all building this together. And I think that's an important part of what we do. Yeah, thanks for sharing some of those important lessons. You know, you need someone who excited about the technologies as well as align with the values, right? Finally, uh, how would you describe the data community in Lisbon? It's interesting, but I think it's still a community developing itself. I cannot say that we are in Lisbon or even in Portugal at this mature state of a strong community. But we have very nice initiatives like Data Science Portugal, for example. We also have the deep learning community in Lisbon, which every week they prepare the sessions to share new things around the data world, new techniques, new algorithms. And I think that's the right path to, in the future, set a very strong community. Definitely. And then maybe just one last quick note. In your bio, you mentioned that you aim to inspire more women to follow your mm-hmm. footsteps and join the tech community. So what are some of the, I guess, initiatives or any activities that you do yourself to encourage more, more women to join the tech industry? Yeah, that's also a very good question. One of the things is I'm active in the Portuguese women in tech, right? I try to be more active when compared to before. But mainly, I'm also very present in discussions or podcasts or in the public, let's say, speaking of about why data, being entrepreneur. And doing that as a woman is a way to inspire others to follow exactly the same path. Say, this is possible. This is something that, although seemed to be hard, it's very fulfilling And to pass this message in a very public way and also to show that to others that are within the community already, I I think it's a way to inspire them to, you know, jump, take the leap and become entrepreneurs in the technology area. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very important to having role models that you to inspire people who enter the field. So Fabiana, at this point of our conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I want to ask you three rapid fire questions and then you can give the quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the data science universe whose work you admire. I would say Hugo La Rochelle, Jamal Tutu, and Daniela Braga, that is a founder of Defend Crowd, a startup in the data area. Number two. Name one book that you would recommend for people to develop a better analytical mindset. I'm a kind of ashamed on this one, but I don't have many time to read books, unfortunately. So <laughs> my latest readings are all about research articles. That's my answer, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem at all. And then lastly, imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Data is your most important asset. Perfect. I think that's, that's a great way to end our conversation, Fabiana. I uh, really enjoy learning a bit about your background, how you used to go from studying applied mathematics to working in IoT architecture to your foray into data science, how you become interested in data privacy and, and studying why data are wide-ranging conversation relating to generative models, differential privacy, the cost of poor data quality, and even model explainability. I'll be sure to uh, include all the links and resources into the show notes so listeners can have a chance to check out 
uh, your podcast, reading some of your articles and follow you and, and to this journey of making synthetic data more well-known you to work. So yeah, Fabiana, I really appreciate you spending time with me this weekend and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you, James. It was a pleasure. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.